Hello, and welcome to the new episode of Women in Customer Success podcast, the first women-only podcast where remarkable ladies of customer success share their stories and practical tools to help you succeed and make an impact. I'm Maria Skobepilei, your host. This is the first episode in 2021, and I'd like to wish you an exciting, successful and amazing year ahead. In today's episode, I'm talking with Sarah Dowdy, customer success champion and founder of Crescendo Labs. Sarah spent the last two decades leading customer success and professional services teams, and currently she's helping companies with designing processes to capitalize on customer success and deliver great customer experiences filled with value. And in this episode, we talk about change management, developing client relationship measurement, skills for customer success managers, and working well with sales. So let's get into it. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Sarah Dowdy, customer success champion and founder of Crescendo Labs to the show. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is mine, Sarah. Would you like to start by giving us a little bit information about your background and your career journey and what brought you into customer success? Yeah, I'd love to. My career really started in the consulting industry. Coming out of school, I went to one of the big consulting firms and a few years after that moved to a smaller boutique firm. And I was more of a technical consultant rather than a management consultant. But being on that side of things, consulting is really where I learned how to be a liaison between the business functions of an organization and technology. And I really loved understanding what organizations' problems were and then trying to solve those problems through a technology. And that translated really well into customer success About eight years ago or so, I joined a small startup that was a B2B SaaS company, and I joined them to lead their customer success team. And I joined during a time where the organization was sub 5 million in ARR. And over the seven or so eight years that I was there, we grew that company to eventually have a nine-figure exit. So we had a really successful run and a lot of growth during that time. And I was lucky enough that I was there during a time where the function and industry of customer success was really and still is just evolving so much. And I also came in to start and grow their customer success group. But over my time at that organization, I also got to take over the account management team as well. So that was really fun because I got to oversee both sides of that customer coin, both driving adoption and health, but also just the whole process of managing renewals and expansions. So fast forward to today, we had that exit at that organization and I stayed for a while after that. But what I decided to do was move into a consultancy and form my own company focused on helping other customer success teams really broaden how their organizations think of them. So let me tell you a little bit about what I mean by that. As I've seen the industry of customer success grow, I believe that many organizations still have too limited of a view of what customer success is. 
I think in a lot of cases, they see it as a service and support arm for their organization on how to take really great care of their customers. But I believe that if customer success is done right, it can be a huge growth driver for a business. And it can lead to more productive ways for your company to grow because you're not losing customers and having to replace them with new sales. And it can also, you know, whether or not a customer success team manages the actual renewal and expansion, they have such a huge influence on it through the activities that they do and the trust that they build with their customer, that they can be a huge driver for expansions and renewals too. I also believe that many times customer success professionals come into customer success not having a lot of experience in industries like sales or you know thinking with that growth mindset. So I really focus on how do you help customer success professionals think with more of a growth mindset And how do you help those teams improve their processes to create better customer experiences and customer outcomes? And how do you, through all of that, elevate the voice of customer success within a company and within the industry in general so that it has a larger seat at the table? That's really a great story, Sarah. So thanks for sharing. It's really interesting to see that you've been in consultancy firstly, then you went into business and then back to different type of consulting, as now you're running your own practice where you help companies capitalize on customer success. So what prompted you to enter the world of customer success previously when it was in its infancy at the time? How did you make that transition from consultancy to customer success? Well, actually, I made the transition because back then, I actually thought they were more similar than they were. (laughs) And I thought it would be just kind of a plug and replace going from leading teams that had these large scale technical implementations to moving to a SaaS business. And I probably underestimated the difference between a professional services world and a SaaS world. And there's some really core things that are similar around, you know, you're deploying a technology, you're trying to get folks to have an easy time with that technology to understand how it fits into their processes. And then the questions and concerns and I'll say issues that come up with using a technology are similar across both sides. But what's different is the need to really conduct so much change management through what you do in customer success because the technology isn't enough. And in our case, and in many cases in the SaaS world, the investment isn't enough to warrant that use, you know, because in my old world of professional services, by the time everything was implemented, a company had maybe spent half a million dollars on that. And they paid for it up front. So now they're trying to get the most out of it. And in the SaaS world where that client is making that decision every month or every year to continue doing it, change management is just so much more important. Those were some of the things that really came to light for me that were so critical and very different between the two worlds. So how do you embed change management into your customer journey so that you're creating awareness and creating desire for your user community to continue to do what you're asking them to do in terms of using your technology and maybe even adjusting their processes to use it? And then how do you create the ability for them to make the change that you're asking through training and enablement? 
And then once they start doing it, how do you celebrate those successes and share those successes so that it's reinforcing those positive changes? And how do you kind of build tricks into your journey so that you're helping the client to do that for themselves versus you doing it as their vendor? Because if I'm Sally user and Sam user starts to get being mentioned in emails going to our boss about how great he's doing, well, that's a lot of pressure that's going to motivate me much more than an email from a vendor telling me to do something. Now you got me really excited about change management. And because you've seen it really closely across the whole customer cycle, from sales, as you were responsible for that part of the business as well, to renewals, when is the best time to start implementing change management? And in what capacity should it be done to make it all seamless? Yeah, that's a great question, Maria. I'm a firm believer that you have to actually start that before the client is a client. I think if you can <laughs> implement some things internally with your sales team to set the right expectations and almost give the sales team messaging on how to explain that customer journey and what should be expected, I think that'll really help. I'll give you an example. So the sales team, they're motivated to make the process as simple as possible so that it goes fast and it has the highest likelihood of that sale happening. You want to do that. You want to maintain the ability for it to be simple, but you do have to let those prospective clients know what to expect. And sometimes that means group over here who's buying the software Yes, you're making the software purchase decision, but you have to let this other team know, maybe it's a network team or an IT team or whoever it is, you have to let them know that this is happening and the why around it, because they're going to be critical to our onboarding and success as we roll out. So some things like that might be helpful. And then also just sharing some client stories or client wins. And they don't have to be long white papers or case studies. They can just be quick win stories that you're sharing that help motivate your prospective clients to move through the sales cycle faster and also give them kind of a visual of, oh, this is what success could look like for us too. And it just helps set some nice foundational things so that by the time you get to your actual kickoff, some of that groundwork has been laid and you don't have to redefine that for your client. And it creates a happier customer experience too, that there's consistency from the sales cycle into your onboarding process too. Absolutely. It's really great to hear your insight into it. I mean, change management is almost that glue that keeps it all well and sticky yeah. for the clients because if you implement no matter which amazing technology you want and it doesn't come down to changing the people and the way they interact with it and even their expectation it's not going to be that successful so thanks for sharing those insights yeah. on change management i always uh, think it's one part technology and two parts change management because it is really critical and there's research out there maria that says your customers see much less different differentiation between your product and your competitor's product than you do. And, and, you know, we're living and breathing our products every day. And so we know this feature is different and this feature is different, but our customers don't always understand that. Or even if they do understand those differences, it might not be as impactful to them as we think. So those things around change management and how we're able to help them adopt and how we're able to be those guides for them, that's what sets us apart, not our technology a lot of the time. I really believe that 
Customer success managers are very often those change makers because they are responsible for achieving that goal and all the kind of little changes that need to happen along the journey. And you start that change process during the sales cycle. So how do you make sure that the relationship that was set up really well can carry on evolving over time as you transition into different teams? So either to customer success or services, implementation specialists, how to really coherently grow that relationship throughout the journey? I think how it's managed can be a little bit different for every company, depending on what teams are involved at different stages of that client journey. Because sometimes, you know, sales team members stay involved after the initial sale. Sometimes that transitions to account management or sometimes customer success is handling all of it. So I think the answer and who owns different relationships can vary. But what I would say is really important is for an organization to map out at our ideal client, these are the roles that are important to us. You know, maybe it's a VP of sales, or maybe it's a VP of customer success, or maybe it's HR. What are the critical kind of buyer roles that we're seeing? What are other executive stakeholder roles that are really important to not necessarily have relationships with where we're talking with them each week, but we want them to know and understand what we're doing. And then it goes down the hierarchy, right? Because it's leadership positions, but it's also maybe a project manager, or maybe it's somebody in IT or somebody in legal who's kind of involved or needs to know and advocate for us, but it's not somebody we work with regularly. And then you have your user community. So once you've mapped out those important roles, I think it's important knowing your customer journey and the different roles involved from your side to kind of define, okay, typically this team or this team member or role is going to own that relationship. And this team member is going to own this relationship and so on. And there could be situations with an individual client where you might adjust that a little bit. But I think making those general guidelines for the team really help to make it clear as different teams at your company are taking the client through their journey. What's my role and responsibility with these different folks at different times? Then I think another thing that's really important is to establish a more objective way of rating a relationship because, you know, it's so easy, whether you're a sales team member or a customer success team member to use your gut in those situations to say, oh, this person, like we really bonded over this mutual hobby that we have, or they really love talking with me, or I solved that challenge for them, or I answered that question. And yeah, I really get along well with them. But getting along well and having a great relationship aren't the same thing. And so what I use with my clients is a scale that's all based on the time that a client team member will spend with me and the level of trust that we have to really objectively measure that relationship. It's a four point scale so that we can grade it. And then what we do is we look at all of those roles we defined And we look at our really objective grade for each of those roles. And then that allows you to have a starting point to say, oh, well, this is where I need to build more relationships or for the relationships that I have, here's where I need to improve them. 
And it kind of becomes a common language for everybody managing that account to speak as you're talking about what kind of partnership do we have with this client informs the types of things you might do with that client to grow it or protect it. And by going broad and asking yourself those hard questions about how good is your relationship truly, it can protect you against things like, oh, I only talked to this one person and they just left the company and now I'm stuck and nobody knows who we are. You raised some really good points. It takes a village. It takes lots of different stakeholders to make a relationship work. And obviously, you don't want to rely only on one person as that is too big of a risk. So you mapped the different types of roles. Are you using it for internal account conversations only? Or I wonder, would there be elements of that mapping that you could also share with the client just to map everyone who is involved in the relationship from both organization and really present that as your organization's investment in that partnership and the relationship? Just wonder what would be your thoughts on it. I think you definitely could turn it that way. You wouldn't phrase it the same way or ask your client the question you ask yourself internally about the relationship. But I think you could position it something like this. So level one is this person makes time for me. Let's say you have a situation where that client is not making time for you and you want to change that. You could use language like, my other clients who make this time for me see these results. And then maybe ask a question, would you like to see those results? Or are those things not important to you? Or how could we fit in the time to help you see those results and talk about those things? So you might frame it a little bit differently. But yeah, I think you could find variations on the questions you ask at each level to make it client facing and help them see the benefit of moving to that level of a relationship with you. And sometimes talking about best in class clients is a nice way to do that because it might make them feel like, oh, others are doing this and seeing an impact of it. Maybe I should think about how I do that with this partner of mine too. This is so interesting. I always see that clients want to be benchmarked. They want to know how they are doing in relation to other clients that we have in the similar industry, what else they might need to do differently, perhaps, so that they can be even better. So I really like that you stress out that importance of storytelling and having a narrative that can just really illustrate to the client what others are doing, of course, without you know, revealing too much data but just giving them hints of what others are doing in order to be successful. And I should say too, Maria, what I'm describing in some of these scenarios might be more for an enterprise type of situation where you have enterprise clients, but you can apply some of these things at scale as well. Because, you know, maybe if you're working with mid-market accounts and you have thousands of accounts, you're not looking to get time individually with certain people, but maybe you want to make sure that they spend time reading the content you put out there, or they spend time going to webinars that you're hosting, things like that. And so I think you kind of have to take the relationship measurement scale and sometimes apply it at scale, or think about how does it fit in your journey differently if you're at an organization that's doing things with a much larger number of accounts. That's really great. I'm interested to hear these stories. So let's say you have 
a champion on the client side and the relationship is really going really well. They are happy to talk about your product and the partnership. They speak about your events. They are a real advocate, so everything seems really rosy. But then, especially if we are talking about enterprise clients, you have lots of other team members who maybe have completely different perspective. Maybe they are dealing with a solution more frequently or they have been more involved in particular parts of the, the project or the journey. It could be anything, really. Maybe they are not even adequately trained to use it, but their experience seems to be much different than the experience from that champion. And we are talking about the same client. So how would you manage very different relationships or different experiences within that one account or one client and still have that coherent measurement of relationship? Well, the relationship measurement I mentioned, I would recommend doing that by person. So that's one thing. But I, you're hitting on a really important thing because the way you build a relationship isn't going to be the same with everybody. So what is really important is to understand for each person or maybe in a situation where you're at scale, each role, you know, what are the things they care about? Because that's where people take action. They take action at the intersection of what they care about personally and what they care about professionally. Like if you picture a Venn diagram, action happens in the middle of those two things. So it is important to understand, let's say our primary buyer is the head of sales. So if I'm in an enterprise environment, my head of sales is Jane. What does Jane care about professionally and what does she care about personally? And those are the things that I want to start to hit on if I'm trying to improve my relationship or build a relationship with Jane. If I'm in a more low-touch environment where I have thousands of accounts, hundreds of accounts, I might not focus in on Jane, but I might focus in on the head of sales at my clients. They typically care about this professionally and this personally. So all of my messaging is going to be targeted to that because that's going to help drive them to interact with you in the way that you want and the way that starts to improve your relationship and build trust. Really thinking about that type of persona when you don't know the, let's say, exact individual you're dealing with, mm -hmm. or obviously building that relationship and trust with the individual and understanding what matters to them. Yeah. And then the second thing that you want to think about is what can they do? What power do they have within their company? And again, you can kind of do this by person if you're in an enterprise world, or you can do it by role if you're in more of a low touch world. So at an enterprise level, if we go back to Jane, what kind of power does Jane have at her company? Does she influence others or does she teach or does she make decisions? And the answers to that question will help you understand what that relationship can move you toward. Maybe you don't have a good relationship with Jane, but you have a great relationship with Bob, who is not the head of sales, but he's in charge of sales apps. Well, if Bob is a great influencer, maybe you can leverage Bob to help influence Jane and get that time. So you kind of have to, you can kind of think about those different things. And like I said, you can do it for an individual person or you can do it for a role and start to look at where you have the gaps, but where do you have strength in your relationship mapping and start to build more relationships and build better relationships based on those things. 
Sarah, these are fantastic insights. I already feel that we are having a mini <laughs> masterclass here <laughs> in this episode. Well, yeah. I'm so glad you're asking about this because what I found to happen, and I'm sure this doesn't happen at every organization, but in a sales world, you talk so much about building relationships because people make purchase decisions. One, they can't make them independently. Oftentimes it takes a group of people at a company to make a purchase decision. And you have to think about these things to really influence that decision. But what I've seen happen is after that contract gets signed, we stop talking about relationships. And it's kind of ironic because customer success probably has the their relationship people. They love to build relationships, but nobody's thinking about it in a systemic way post-sale. And that's risky because guess what? The renewal or an expansion, that's a sale too. And you're going to need multiple people bought in saying, yeah, I've heard we're getting value from that investment we've made. I've heard they do good things and our team likes it. Let's keep doing it. So it is really important to continue that relationship mindset post-sale and not just to bank on the couple of people we talk to on a regular basis and trust that they're going to do the things we need. You have to keep building those relationships and deepening those relationships post-sale. I would like to hear from you now. What do you think? What is preventing CSMs to build that type of relationships? I have few ideas. I won't tell now straight away. I want to hear your opinions, but yeah, I really would like to hear that. That's a great question. I think the primary reason is that they're not taught to do that. I think it's not a part of what is described in their role. I mean, yes, you describe the role of you work with a project manager and you work with different folks during onboarding and then ongoing, the ongoing relationship, but they're not specifically told in order for us to be successful and grow these accounts, we have to maintain relationships. So I, th- I think just, you know, knowing that's a part of the role and thinking about it that way is step one. And I think another reason that this happens, and this goes back to what we talked about with the different teams that get involved. Oftentimes the sales team or an account management team is seen as the people who maintain a relationship. If it's not clearly defined how different teams at your company, whether it's customer success or account management or or even the implementation team or support teams, if it's not clearly defined who should own those relationships, then it gets weird, right? It's like everybody feels like they're stepping on toes. I'm not the primary person to talk to that person. And so what happens is it's just a miscommunication and a breakdown And folks might be assuming other folks are doing it and then just it's not happening at the right rate. And and I should say, when I talk about owning a relationship, that doesn't mean that's the only person who talks to that person. Like it's just having some accountability to we're going to improve our relationship with this person or this role through the things that we're doing and here's how we're going to go about it. But I think it's just a breakdown of not defining those things and then And then it starts to get a little emotional and political, maybe, around who's reaching out to who. And I think you made some great points. When I'm working with sales, we always call ourselves co-pilots in front of the client. We usually make a point to really clearly state our responsibilities and to distinguish who owns which part of the process. So although it is a clear distinction to the clients, or at least we think it is, sometimes 
I can see that they have some preferences whom to contact for particular things. So we just make sure that our communication is always transparent and we always know what's happening and either sales or my team, we can always help out and do the work. That's fine. But I also think there is that shift in pace and priorities. So when you think about the sales process, it's all about creating that relationship and discovering the solution in order to close the sale. But then as soon as you start with the onboarding, it just seems that things start to happen much quicker. Suddenly you're starting a project. There is lots of different activities that need to happen. Lots of tasks that need to be completed. Training, onboarding users, really lots of different things in the very often short span of time. So I think there is just that time pressure on customer success to deliver loads of different type of things. And the relationship aspect might just not be the number one priority. And also because it takes more different stakeholders at this time. So just really wonder what are your thoughts on it? I think you're exactly right. And I think it does fall off the priority list because CSMs are juggling a lot of different things. And I would add too, if you think about like in a sales role, you really train a team like that on how to build relationships in a certain way. And most customer success professionals don't come from a sales background. I think it's, I saw a stat once only about 12% do. Instead, they come from an implementation or project management or maybe even a support background. So they're not trained to think naturally like that. And it, it might feel a little intimidating for them to reach out to somebody new and try to push to build a relationship. So of course, if they've got a million things on their plate, the things they don't feel confident in are going to be the stuff that falls off. So I think that you're very right. You're balancing a lot of things as a customer success professional and building the relationships, you know, because they oftentimes don't have a timeline or a deadline. And if they're not comfortable, they're going to fall to the wayside more than the tasks. I love your thoughts about the skills that potentially there is that skill gap that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for your insight. I'm just enjoying this conversation. I'm really feeling that this is a nice masterclass. And, and I wanted to ask you, as we spoke about, you know, different personas, different motivations, what is it that motivates you in the work that you do? What do you enjoy? Oh, well, I am a huge believer that customer success doesn't have the voice that it should within an organization. If you look at executive teams, there's heads of sales, there's heads of product, engineering, and sometimes chief customer officer might not even be a role or head of customer success might report through another executive. And I think, gosh, when you look at the impact that customer success has on an organization, a SaaS business, not only are you maintaining all of your revenue, <laughs> but you're in some cases really influential in driving growth on that revenue. I mean, best in class SaaS businesses should be driving 30 to 40% of their growth each year through existing customers. So it warrants a seat at that table. And so my motivation is to help teams do these things better and be more influential in driving that growth and elevate how we're thought of in the industry. And I wonder, do you have any particular business or business role model that you admire uh, that you're learning from? 
Well, I'm a huge fan of Indra Nui, the former CEO of PepsiCo. I just think she's so personable in her talks and she's just so transparent about the challenges of balancing a professional and personal life and where she got it wrong and or feels that she got it wrong. So I just think she's really inspiring. And then in the world of customer success, I'm a really big fan of Erit Ezip's I know you've had her on before, Maria. And oh, yeah, I love her. <laughs> she's just done so much to evangelize our function and promote it. I think she's a big reason that customer success has had such a large evolution over the past decade. So I- I'm a huge fan of hers. Oh, it's amazing to talk about role models. I'm really excited to see so many emerging role models, even in customer success industry. There are some awesome people out there to learn from and to follow, especially on LinkedIn and other platforms. So Sarah, based on your broad experience in building different teams and helping companies to scale their customer success operations and become successful, what would you say is really, really important for aspiring leaders? What will drive their success? One of the things that I think is so important for any leader, but customer success leaders especially is to be intellectually curious. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is what I mentioned before, there's so many variations on how you can do customer success, depending on the maturity of your organization and the product that your company is promoting. So you have to be curious because when you come into a role or when you pursue a new role, or even as your company evolves, it's almost like the definition of your job is going to change. It's not like going from one organization to another in a sales role, like where you can take a lot of practices, like the infrastructure could actually change. So you have to be curious and learn and go in with an open mind in those situations. But in customer success, I think it's especially important because that curiosity is what's going to drive you to understand your customers. And at the end of the day, that's what this is all about, to help our customers have great experiences and great outcomes. And so if you're not curious about what that means for your customer base, it's going to be really hard to hit the mark on that. Great insight, Sarah. Thanks so much for coming to the show. It has been such a pleasure. I really loved talking to you. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Maria. It's been fun. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please click on the review button on Apple Podcast and write a comment. Follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram and suggest the role models you would like to see on the show. Stay safe and happy. Talk to you soon.